0: Кадры, которые мы получили только, что Владимир Путин не слушал, What does Vladimir Putin believe? Is there a coherent ideology driving his regime, its autocracy and its imperial ambitions? And if so, where did this ideology come from and what does it mean? for Russia's domestic and foreign policy going forward. These are questions we've all been asking for decades. And with Russia's invasion of Ukraine well into its 20th month, they are questions that are more relevant now than ever. Today, we'll speak to one of the co-authors of an important new report dissecting the Putinist ideology and its implications. So stick around. Hello from my makeshift office studio in Washington, D.C.'s trendy DuPont Circle neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. is my old friend, Maria Snegovaya, a senior fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center For Strategic and International Studies. Maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Maria is also, for important for today's podcast, the co author of a newly published and must read report from CSIS titled The Ideology of Putinism Is It Sustainable? Welcome back to the vertical, Maria.
1: Thanks so much for having me,
0: Brian. Thanks for coming on and thanks for a great report. Also joining us from our nation's capital is Kathleen Smith, a professor at Georgetown's Walsh School of Foreign Service and associate director of its Center for Eurasian, Russian, and Eastern European Studies. Kathleen was also one of the outside reviewers of the CSIS report that we will will discuss today. Welcome to The Vertical, Kathleen.
2: Thank you, Brian. Happy to be here.
0: Happy to have you. So, first of all, Maria, congratulations on what is, it? I think, a great and important report. Uh, you and your co-authors write that Putinist ideology is marked by a imperial nationalist statism amplified by Russian greatness, exceptionalism, and historical struggle with the West. And rather than being written down in a canon of philosophical texts, instead, this ideology is transmitted through signs of symbols in popular culture uh this transmission belt aspect particularly use of popular culture is very very interesting to me and contrasts sharply with traditional soviet methods of ideological indoctrination just to get us rolling on this note could you say a few words about that maria because i found that aspect of it really interesting and it rang really true to me
1: uh thank you very much brian uh yes and uh, in this uh, paper we uh... Partly responding to a common assumption among some schools of Russia, uh, for example, uh, Sergei Guriev, a prominent uh, Russian eco- economist of Russia, and Dan Trisman, a political scientist, have recently pu- published a great book in Dictators, uh, where they claim that contemporary uh, autocrats do not have an ideology. Uh, so this is what we are against. Uh, so it is true that in the Marxist sense, as, uh, as said all for the Structured, very well developed, uh, mutually coherent ideas, which are also expressed in this big philosophical books. Uh, Putin regime does not have that, uh, but that should not be con- at least does not have yet that yet, because it is sort of evolving over the time. Uh, but that should not be confused as uh, we are arguing with an absence of ideology per se, and by ideology here I mean a coherent system of ideas that rely on a few basic assumptions of reality. They may or may not have any factual basis and are being actively promoted into the society. And here, we also rely actually on Louis Althusser's um, assumption that it's very important that those ideas are engaged uh, and connected with certain social practices. Uh, So it goes beyond just the beliefs, but practices. And in this uh, report, uh, we show that when defined as such, uh, Putin regime, Uh, actually does have an ideology. We do not. I just want to make this point very clear. Read, uh, present to read Putin's mind. We look at the factual evidence. Yeah, that's not a very...
0: uh, No, getting inside Putin's head is hard because it's a very dark place where you can't see anything without a flashlight, probably.
1: Better not get there for our own own sanity. Exactly. Uh, But, I mean, when it comes to a specific set of the ideas that are actually coherent, consistent, and have been promoted by the Kremlin, uh, in the Russian society. Over the years, uh, it certainly is uh, there. And most importantly, since mid-2000s of those ideas, since mid-2010s, I'm sorry, those ideas have also been uh, converted into practices. The regime made made a point for them, for the society to engage with them, which we find to also be very, very important. Uh, so uh, I think one of the, our contributions, uh, I realized it hasn't been done before. That's why I thought it was very important us to do it, uh, we are tracing the long-term uh, Kremlin's evolution in terms of how these narratives have been promoted, uh, how they were developed more and more consistently over a series of the external challenges that the regime has faced, including uh, what the regime has perceived as challenges, including the color revolutions, including, of course, uh, the 2011-12 Russian protests, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, And uh, eventually, uh, we argue that despite the fact that the framing, specific framing, may differ, that is, the Kremlin may claim that uh, Ukrainians are Satanists uh, or they are, quote-unquote, Nazis, uh, the underlying ideas, they remain the same, uh, same, consistent. So what are those ideas? Uh, So the first one, and actually I want to thank uh, uh, Professor Smith for pointing that out, the key important one. Uh, element is actually the role of the state, status. Yes. It's almost a sacred worship of the state that is always supreme and is always right. Uh, and it's also based on um, historical continuity of the Russian state. Uh, it's also important that Putin reinterpreted uh, the concept of the Russian state, unlike Yeltsin, uh, who has seen the new liberal democratic Russia emerging after the collapse of the Soviet system as a new, better version of Russia. Putin claims that if, in fact, the collapse of the system was a big mistake, and instead Russia constitutes and represents this um, almost uninterruptible kind of state that without history for different versions, be it Russian empire, the Soviet union, or today's Putin's Russia has always represented this stronghold. Uh, that keeps russia as we know it uh, saves it from multiple challenges and essentially makes lives better for the russians uh, second uh, russia is also under consistent threat so that's why it's very important that putin tries to preserve and save it uh there's also an existential urgency uh to uh, here. that's actually very typical for many ideologies did like iran iran iranian regime also uses the same sense of existential urgency. That is used, of course, to justify Putin's hold on power, but also the need to foster national unity, uh, therefore, uh, because of the challenges. Now, where is this threat coming from? That's the third tenet, as we argue. That's from the West. And that is actually a notion that's uh, just reinterpreted Soviet, a notion pretty much of the fight against this, uh, the horrible capitalist world. Today, uh, it's maybe not the capitals, but still Western world against which Russia is courageously uh, surviving in this existential struggle. Uh, The West is uh, trying to uh, destroy Russia because of the, um, uh, first of all, because of Russia's resources that are plenty. And as you know, um, of course, Putin and his associates really believe that uh, uh, some of the Western uh, statesmen tried trying to partition Russia. Uh, but on top of that, it's also because Russia is so exceptional and unique, uh, that is the fourth tenet, that, and its values are so special. Uh, here's the traditionalism, the key tenet, uh, that, that they clash directly with the liberal um, and also very bad values that the West promotes. So it's very important that Russia fights uh, to defend uh, those, Last but not the least, all of that is wrapped in the cult of the Great Patriotic War. Uh, this is highly important because the Great War, the Russia's victory in the Second World War is highly important, almost foundational uh, for, for today's Russian state. Uh, it does uh, serve as a precondition for Russia's uh, super great power international status, thanks to the Sid uh, and, of course, the Nukes uh, as well and um, uh that is also the notion that helps explain that historically Russia has been fighting against the west and the nazis uh, that the west uh spread so in this sense the great uh the victory and the great patriotic war is very instrumental for the Kremlin to justify also this uh, war against uh Ukraine because just as in the past uh the um, Soviet Union thought against the Nazi or coming from the west quote unquote, uh then uh Today, as well, uh, Russia's fighting against the Nazis that comes from Ukraine, but is inspired uh, by the West as well. Uh, So we argue, if you look closely at the type of narratives that the Kremlin has promoted, pretty much since the start of Putin's rule, but especially since mid-2000s, you see that there is an internal consistency among them, even if specific framing uh, may be different, that is the Putin one, maybe after uh, establishing Buskimir in Ukraine, or maybe Eurasian Union across the former post soviet space. I think uh, we should pay less attention to this shallow superficial aspect of how that is framed, but uh, still pay attention to the underlying feature. And the underlying message is still the same. Russia has special special um, right, special claim over the neighboring territories, the, the quote-unquote near abroad. And it gets to control essentially and tell this uh state neighboring states how to essentially how to exist how to uh, continue uh so that is essentially the key uh of our argument.
0: yeah no thanks that's a very good summary of uh, of the whole paper what i want to do in the first half uh, is kind of dive into each of these tenets a little bit but before we do that something kind of you raised at the very beginning this definitional aspect of what constitutes an ideology and those that are arguing that Russia doesn't have an ideology right now—that it's all kind of slapdash—you know—it's uh, like a montage of Russian imperial and post-Soviet motifs, if you will—they um, they, they often point to the fact that this is not this this is not teleological, uh, you know, in the sense that Marxism-Leninism was pointing towards some. And now I would take a little issue with that, actually, because if you read Ivan Lee, whom I believe to be one of the central figures in the development of Putin's ideology uh, for a lot of reasons. You do see some teleological elements of this. I want to bring Kathleen into this. Now, Kathleen, you were you are an outside reviewer on this paper, so you're very intimately familiar with it. Uh, Could you could you remark on, on this aspect and other things that Maria was talking about in terms of summarizing? And then I want to dive into each of the aspects, each of the tenets.
2: Sure. Well, I I definitely think that uh, this definitional aspect is probably the most controversial part of the paper because I think that uh, in many ways, it does go against a kind of common sense uh, definition of ideology that assumes that it's a coherent set of ideals, usually a kind of model, you know, that one might propose to others that they follow but as Maria is pointing out, the way that she and her co-authors are using it here, they're finding, you know, an internal consistency in what, as you said, is like a montage. It's like a collage of things. Um, and that doesn't have some of the qualities of coherence that we might typically expect because it's not subordinate to some utopian idea or some kind of, you know, evangelizing idea, everyone in the world should behave this way, because this is the, you know, this is the right way to live. It is very much a self-centered, self-reflective, essentialist, we are Russia, no one is like us, a uh, set of ideas. And so, um, you know, whether it, it it rises to the level of ideology, I think is definitely debatable. But I think that the elements that they are pulling out here are very important and i think that it's definitely worth considering how they fit together and then also you know the the subtitle of the report is is it sustainable i think we could add to that is it effective
0: mm-hmm.
2: in other words they put on a big glitzy show but what's the impact to me that's one of the interesting questions um kind of the further research uh questions that you think of when you get to the end of this report
0: yeah, no. I mean, the way the way this was described to me actually years ago by your colleague at the law school, uh, 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 Angela Stent, was that it's an incipient ideology. It's not fully formed yet. Again, it's not teleological, um, which is which is which is an important aspect of it. But it's an incipient ideology, and it's built around, I believe, this imperial impulse to restore Russia's great power status. I think that's very very central to the whole thing. Um, let's dive into these. Marie, you kind of ran through the tenets um here. I wanna start again with statism. Because that's basically and you make a really important point, you and your co-authors make a really important point in the paper that as rather than kind of the break the that, that, that the uh, end of the Soviet Union was supposed to represent. Uh, Yeltsin, Yeltsinism represented this kind of discontinuity, something new was starting in 1991. You said Putin kind of returned to this millenn, like this millennium kind of uh, continuity of of the Russian state. Could you kind of speak to that a little bit? And I want to get Kathleen to, 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 to come in, because I think the, the state is the central aspect here and uh, statism is the central aspect.
1: I think Kelly's work um, as a um, uh, scholar, especially of the myths uh, myths that the Russian state has historically embraced, I think will be highly, highly instrumental uh, in highlighting this angle. Um, and uh, I just wanted to also, by responding to Kelly's point and answer to your question, Brian, uh, to flag the fact uh, that it's not like the Kremlin is coming up something that's brand new, right? It's not a radical a reinterpretation of all of Russian history or promotion of some of the ideas that weren't uh, there in the first place. As a matter of fact, uh, and I think it's very important when we um, are thinking about how sustainable this is, uh, many of the ideas uh, uh, directly borrowed or reinterpreted from the late Soviet Union. When, uh, first of all, after the um, Brezhnev period, it became pretty obvious for us that. Uh, communism is not gonna it's not gonna was gonna materialize uh under the um, uh during their lifetime uh the emphasis started to be shifting slowly in some of the kremlin circles in some of these late soviet thinkers towards more uh radial, um emphasis on uh, some sort of russian nationalism or maybe like soviet uh, nationalism when russia on top and again this importance of statism because of that, uh, the paternalism has been emphasized, as was almost the civilizational aspect of the Russian state. Um, Will Permanant, uh, actually uh, from the Canon Institute, very assuredly uh, points out that the reason why uh, the state historically occupies such an important uh, place in all of the um, uh, like Russian thinking on this topic is largely because it still is, and all historically has been the only institution that has held the country together, or the empire, for that matter. And unfortunately, indeed, uh, if you take uh, take a look, uh, take a close look uh, at Russia's history, that uh, indeed there's a lot of truth uh, to it, right? There's no independent institutions or uh, grassroots, bottom-up organizing institutions, like civil society or certain institutional structures that would have helped. Hence, a weakened state, often, indeed, equals chaos. And that's certainly what many of the Russians uh, experienced uh, during their lifetime in the 1990s, when, in in fact, the disappearance of a strong, uh, controlling, autocratic, and repressive, unfortunately, as well. State led to disorder and inability of the uh, Russian society essentially to make sense of itself, right? To get hold of itself. So that also in a lot of ways, I think, adds this uh, highly important aspect, uh, element, why uh, explain, helps us understand why the state is so important uh, historically in Russia. uh, That is because, really, uh, there's little to replace it. And also, of course, we know that the Russian state is very wary of any possible competition emerging. So when there is an effort for a society to develop certain structures, to self-organize, those are often crushed immediately so that nobody even dares to imagine that something is possible without uh, this uh, str- exceptional, strong, paternalistic, all embracing uh, state. And uh, I would also flag one last thing. I think there's almost an element of sacrality uh, to it, almost some sort of a worshiping. The true religion is not uh, with the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, the true religion is with the state. And the Russian Orthodox Church is itself subordinated uh, to the state.
0: Yeah, no, it's almost like it goes back to the Nicholas II's autoth- autocracy or uh, Orthodoxy and nationality, um, which I, I see also as one of the ideological yeah. antecedents of this. Uh, Kathleen, would you agree that statism is at the center of this? I mean, the interesting thing about the '90s is the repressive aspect of the state kind of diminished. Uh, and dissipated, but also the functionality of the state, like things that they're very basic things, like paying pensions, uh, also dissipated. And the unfortunate result of that is, for a lot of Russians, the the freedom became a, the equivalent of, of chaos and dysfunctionality. And so the state is the comfort zone, the safe place, if you will. Uh, could 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 would, would you agree with that? one? could you kind of react to Maria's uh, characterization?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with both of you on this point, um, and especially that the state is seen as this guarantor of security on a daily level. So, when we look at what people dislike about the so called wild 90s, when they look back, you know, it has to do with changing prices, uh, disorder, unemployment, right? All of these new phenomena that they were facing. And they look at Yeltsin and see his in some ways, anti-totalitarian rhetoric, which moved away somewhat from the idea of the strong state and tried to make citizens as voters feel more responsible for the shape of the state. Um, and yet, you know, his his time in office was, you know, not one of economic success. It wasn't one where people felt more secure. Uh, it's 30 years ago this week that they had the conflict, the constitutional crisis, right, which... Um, You know, force was used to disband the Supreme Soviet after the Supreme Soviet itself had used force, uh, you know, against uh, against the ruling order. So when you look at that, what happens when the state is weak, it's in crisis. I do think that that's a terrifying idea. And so for many people, the advantage of replacing Yeltsin with Putin and Putin was kind of an unknown was, in fact, that he was this statist person, this kind of gray, unknown Cinderella, who's plucked out of obscurity, but has a track record working for, you know, the most secretive elements of the state, uh, that he's going to be a defender of state power. And I think from the very beginning, that's that's true. Um, And so, you know, what Maria is saying, that sort of sacred element, I think that Putin himself feels it he feels the weight of that responsibility but he also propagates it the idea that without the state Russia is nothing and that threats to Russia are inherently threats to the state so it's a very undemocratic idea I mean democracy is all about you know running for elections and having people lose and the, and then the game goes on that's not really part of his mindset
0: yeah no and I think Kathleen, you raised the issue of the 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 events of October 1993, and I think it's worth noting the contrast with Ukraine at this exact same period. Ukraine was experienced an exact the exact same constitutional crisis. The Russians resolved it with force, which kind of was the beginning of this move back to the state, I would argue it's Russia's original sin. Ukraine resolved it with early elections for both the parliament and the president in which the incumbent president lost that set the stage in Ukraine for the evolution of, of, of a stronger civil society. Marie, I'm sorry, I I interrupted you. You want to jump in? No,
1: that's that's a, that's a great addition, uh, Brian. Uh, Even if I think in Ukraine, you already have the preconditions.
0: uh, Yeah.
1: uh, You know, having way less, way small, low, low inclination to raise the state is for historical reasons as well, but you're absolutely yep. right. I just wanted to flag what uh, Kathleen has said. There's a value aspect uh, to this, right? As uh, uh, this worshiping of this powerful white state and subordination of the individual to this uh, state, as a matter of fact, Russian people. Um, uh the officially promoted uh values right now that some of them are even in the constitution as uh for the amendments of 2020 actually really literally emphasize the importance of this subordination to this greater common good uh quote, those are certainly directly opposed to the uh, u.s individualism uh the primacy of an individual over the state as in anything that uh, you know they, uh, embracing of this fight struggle an individual against this powerful uh horrible repressive state so from that perspective i wanted to flag that we still are facing a value clash between russia and the united states uh today i think it goes beyond just in the position between a democracy and autocracy as the white house for example tends to present this but actually towards this value uh, opposition, because it is a different, uh, it is an embrace of different values uh, by, again, the Russia, a a significant share of the Russian society as opposed to the U.S. society.
0: Yeah, no, thanks for that. And I also, another thing I wanted to, and you kind of set me up for this a little bit, Maria, so thank you. The other other aspects of this I wanted to drill down into, it's something I'm I, I kind of pay a lot of attention to, and my my students will, will hear this from me again and again and again, the persistent presence of a messianic goal at every stage of Russian history. And so messianism and Russian exceptionalism are, are a central component of this. I mean, you have, you know, you can go back to to medieval Muscovy and the notion of the third row you can go back to nicholas the First in the notion of of autocracy nationality and orthodoxy um, i always get the order wrong on those but you all all three are there um you of course in the the soviet notion of the promotion of world communism right um now putin's messianic goal is what um i mean i think there are some elements to this i mean the he he is kind of picking up on this notion of Russia of the third rome in 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 a sense, in his campaign against Western liberalism, in his campaign uh, for social for so called social conservative conservatism and so called traditional values, his campaign against LGBTQ community the LGBTQ community against feminism and so on and so forth. You see this as the kind of trans the the thing that I think Putin is hoping is replicable, and this was an actual program of the kremlin to kind of to, to to push this can you speak a little bit about this idea of messianism and exceptionalism and and how this fits into the to the putinist regime
1: uh yeah many many things brian great question uh so we actually uh distinguish the exceptionalism and uh traditionalism those are two uh, different pillars uh f- for us uh specifically the emphasis on traditionalism has emerged after because has been reinforced after 2011 12. Uh, when after the pro-liberal democratic protests in Russia, Putin realized that he essentially lost uh, this liberal uh, base of support. And we focused on more traditionalist bases from uh, Russia's uh, region, where I think a lot of the emphasis on this traditionalist comes from. Uh, they, uh, and that is also very important. Uh, but the exceptional aspect, I think has been uh, there from the start. It, it, more recently, this uh, aspect of exceptionalism has also been reworked into this uh, into the perception of Russia as a civilization, almost civilization state. Yep. We are recording this podcast the week when Putin uh, gave his another speech in Baldei, a uh, break about how well Russia is handling uh, this war in okay. Ukraine, and he actually doubled down on that particular civilization aspect, where Russia is a great power and it uh, does represent a unique. A set of values that indeed are distinguishing it uh, from uh, the rest of the world and certainly um, gives Russia certain special rights, including uh, justification for uh, all sorts of atrocities and values uh, and, and wars. I'm sorry. That is because Russia is not accountable, it's not to be judged by common, uh, you know, a liberal democratic or a liberal international system standards. It is special, that is why this civilization aspect is very, very dangerous in my opinion. Uh, it also relies on uh, multiple of course works from uh, early uh, nine, uh, 20th century Russian and the Great community, including of course Ivan Ilyin. Um, actually, we did not have uh, time, um, a lot of space available to devote uh, to this particular issue, but certainly Ilyin is highly important uh, in that regard. Uh, and unfortunately, as well as some fascist and almost racist elements of that ideology that come with it, uh, we do see them being echoed in some propagandist narratives about Ukrainians, for example, or those Ukrainians mm-hmm. who don't want to, quote-unquote, coordinate uh, to the Russian of all. And uh, even in the title of the group that is charged these days with elaboration of uh, um, a special university-level course fundamentals of Russian statehood. Uh, uh, um, Andrei Kolesnikov, our friend uh, from Carnegie, called it essentially a new version of scientific communism. Uh, The group that develops this course is led by administration and political technologist Andrei Polozin, but it's called Russia's DNA. So yet again, this emphasis of how distinct and unique Russia is, and I think it's very important to flag.
0: The, in terms of the, the the current curators of this incipient ideology, the report uh, notes somebody very important, Putin's former minister of culture, uh, Vladimir Radinsky. Um, his role in this is central. And Maria, since you mentioned Ivan Elyin, you opened the door for me to, to to sit on one of my hobby horses here because I actually do think Eileen is extremely important. And I see echoes of Eileen. In things, Medinsky says and writes. In things, other ideologists of the Putin regime, like Alexander Dugin, say and write. They're basically all, to, to, from my perspective, they all seem to be recycling Elen's ideas. This idea of Russian Russia as an organic culture that absorbs other nationalities that are on its territory. Effectively, this this, this idea that Russia is fundamentally innocent um, and is carrying out a specific divine mission in the world this you hear this in putin's speeches you see it in medinsky's writing you see it in dugan's writing and i i um so so uh, just to, to bring uh I, I lean into it kathleen your your thoughts on this these other propagandists the other curators of the ideology like medinsky dugan the echoes of eline in their thought um do we see some kind of continuity here between the silver age and the white russian thinkers and today
2: I cannot claim to be a big expert on Ivan Ileen's. I, I can't say specifically referential to what, you know, what he was writing in the 1920s and so forth, but I do think that, you know, with Dugin and other people who are very conservative and very much on the search for uh, persuasive means to unite the Russian people. They certainly, by by nature, are always looking to the past. They're always looking for continuities and inspiring voices, and to a certain extent, they're not really bothered if the ideas aren't a perfect fit. I, th- I mean, I think they're really great at uh, cherry picking the parts mm. that they that they like and. I think we see that with the current kind of collage of, you know, what does it mean to be Russian? It's it's sort of everyone that we like from Russian history, we'll put them together, you know, in a row. and And that's what it means to be Russian. So I don't know how much Putin reads philosophy. I think that he has pretty strong philosophical streak, but I do think that he seems to be prey to some of this sort of pseudoscience about, uh, you know, biopolitics and that Russia is this, you know, as you said, it's got this special DNA. It's got this special strength. It is, in the words now of the constitution, a state forming people, which implies that not all peoples are state forming people. So again, for him, he ties it back into the notion of the state um, and making this exceptional status for Russia. I don't, I don't know what to expect to what you'll have to tell me to what extent that meshes yeah, with elite. I mean,
0: that that state forming element that does mesh with elite because elite is basically says Russian culture is organic and everything on Russian territory automatically becomes absorbed into this giant Russian organic whole. Then we see echoes of this in Nicholas I, this state forming formulation was actually literally word for word Ah, uh, part of the, the the autocracy, orthodoxy, and nationality kind of it's the nationality component of of Nicholas the First's triad. So we, we basically do see that. And as far as Aline, I mean, you see, I mean, there are reading groups in the Kremlin that read Aline's works. All of his works have been published in enormous volumes across across Russia since the nineties. Uh Putin brought his body back from Switzerland, exhumed it and had it reburied in Russia with full military with the full full honors in with a patriarch presiding over the burial. Putin regularly cites him in his speeches. And I mean, he uh, they they bought the archives from the from, if, if I'm not mistaken, the University of Michigan and brought his papers back to Russia. Now, that all those things together, it's hard to kind of prove influence. Right. That's one of the hardest academic things to do. But if you take all those data points together, it's a pretty, pretty powerful case. Uh, Maria, any last thoughts on this before we move into the second half, because I'm mindful of the clock here.
1: Quickly, uh, to comment on it, I actually, it's my big realization and engagement with this uh, uh, ideological thinking uh, in the Kremlin uh, came in 2014 uh, when I learned that the Kremlin specifically assigned Russia's regional governor to read the works by uh, Russian philosophers, including Ilyin, Solovyov, and Berdyaev. Yep. And uh, then, of course, I read exactly which parts of uh, Lenin were assigned and essentially again more and more. And certainly I had a huge realization at the time that unfortunately could really delete uh, what he uh, was claiming. Uh Il-Yin also has this, on top of everything else that Prime you have uh, you've, you've described, he also has a very active anti-West aspect. Yes. He openly says that Western nations don't understand and don't tolerate Russian identity. Going to divide the United Russian broom into twigs to break these twigs one by one and find with them the fading light of their civilization. If you listen once again to this week's uh, Putin's Valdez speech, literally almost uh, the same idea with slight uh, reformulation. Uh, so that is very important. And unfortunately, and this is something uh, that I want to flag, I see no obvious challenge uh, to that. Identity, uh, like to these perceptions uh, that are kind of popular in Russia emerging anytime soon. One last point about Medinsky. Uh, he certainly uh, uh, plays a huge role in this development. He is more of a um, servant to Putin, I'd say. In the sense, that he's not an ideal, uh, ideal behind it. Putin would have had these ideas with or without Medinsky. But Medinsky, uh, who is often actually described as a nationalist enamored of classicism and traditional values, uh, certainly it plays a huge role. It's very straightforward uh, through um, our report. Already back in 2014, Litinsky tried to introduce something similar to a version of Russian ideology, suggesting um, a, uh, a foundation, a set of Russian foundational like values. At the time, it was a little bit too radical for the, administra- uh, the For the presidential administration, they rewrote it. But uh, last year. These uh, foundations of Russia's uh, values, essentially, they've been accepted pretty much in the same original 2014 version that Medinsky has offered. He is also one of the co-authors of this uh, actually horrible uh, United History textbook that's now been assigned uh, to Russia's high schools, uh, where pretty much the same ideological elements that we discussed, uh, including Nazism in Ukraine, Uh, The West tried to destroy uh, Russia, uh, actually very well uh, developed. Last but not the least, he's also one of the um, uh, contributors to this course, the New Scientific Communism course, Fundamentals of Russian Statehood, where he uh, focuses specifically on the part uh, devoted to um, uh, Russian history. So, I'm sorry about that. (laughs) That's probably not the right word to use to describe uh, what it is that he is uh, discussing during that course. So certainly he's highly important, and I think therefore for people who are interested in this topic, it's worth uh, going back uh, to his earlier work, uh, where since the start, uh, he's actually been promoting very similar ideas.
0: Yeah. No, and like some prominent scholars, most notably Timothy Snyder at Yale University, have made a convincing case that the ideology of Putin is effectively fascism. Um, drawing on Eileen, who was a fascist thinker, who was a fa- in, in the very real sense, I don't throw the F word out here, you know, kind of uh, willy-nilly. Uh, Eileen was actually an actual supporter of Mussolini in Italy and Hitler in Germany, which effectively makes him a fascist but that is that's uh i'll just leave that hanging out there as, as we segue into the second section we can pick up on it if you will everybody kind of wakes up when you say the f word um so in a few moments we will continue our discussion and look at the origins and evolution of of Putinist ideology in the aftermath of the Soviet collapse, I'd like to remind you you are listening to the Power of the Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington D.C. is my old friend Maria Snegovaia, a senior fellow in Europe, uh, Russia, and Eurasia program at the. Center for strategic and international studies in washington maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at the georgetown university's walsh school of foreign service maria is also the co-author of the newly published and must read report from csis titled the ideology of putinism is it sustainable and also joining us from our nation's capitalist kathleen smith a professor at georgetown school of foreign service and the associate director of its center for eurasian russian and eastern european studies I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to PowerVertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all PowerVertical products at PowerVertical.org. And you can follow us on the website, formerly known as the Twitter, at PowerVertical. You can also follow us on Blue Sky and on threads at PowerVertical. Кадры, которые мы получили, только что Владимир Путин никто не
2: слушал. Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже работу безопасности.
0: веком. So in the aftermath of the breakup of the Soviet Union, the report identifies several aspects of Soviet ideology that endured. These included exceptionalism, paternalism, and great power nationalism. All of which we discussed in the first half as components of the Putinist ideology. The report then describes a transition, quote, from repentance to pride, from division to unity, and from the birth of a new democratic Russia to the portrayal of Russian statehood as a millennial tradition. That is a great quote. I love that quote. And that's why I pulled it out and incited it. Uh Maria, can you expand on this a bit? How how did you how do you and your co-authors kind of see this transition, and we kind of alluded to it a bit in the first half, how did this evolution take place from when we all believe we're on the we're on the cusp of the birth of a new democratic Russia back in the summer and fall of 91 uh, to now, 30, 32 some odd years later? Uh, how do you see this evolution unfolding?
1: So to me, honestly, I think that part of the um, uh, big delusionment um, uh, with uh, Russia's uh democratization was uh, the misinterpretation, I think, on our side of what 1990s really represented. Uh, since uh, from my, uh, from where I come from, in other words, along with this report, I think the real preconditions for our democratization of Russia were not there uh, in the first place. Uh, the society, uh, the Russian society kind of got this uh, collapse, was not prepared to the collapse of the Soviet uh, system, uh, so to speak, not prepared mentally even if they want to certainly uh, improve the quality of life, improved and there was a lot of dissatisfaction with the late Soviet Union. Uh, But specifically for this ideological aspect, I think it's important um, uh, to flag that during the Soviet times, as we point out, this sense of belonging to this common uh, collective community in the Soviet Union provided some sort of compensation to the people who may have not maybe had the best uh, quality of life. But the sense of belonging to this great power compensated for it. Uh, this is not unique to Russia. Uh, there are psychological studies that show that it is often the case for maybe economically worse wolf groups to compensate through this sense of belonging to something greater. When uh, all of a sudden that disappeared uh, as the Soviet system collapsed, uh, people felt uh, a sense of loss. It was quite traumatizing, actually. Um, there was a very common saying at the time, which was repeated very often, what a great country did, did we lose? I personally remember my grandfather constantly uh, constantly repeating it. And um, uh, despite the effort, they, they, I want to flag that uh, Democrats or liberals who were in power in the 1990s, they sensed that void. Uh, they tried uh, to come up with an alternative somewhat, uh, for example, refer to the se- search of the national idea which was laughed at at the time, but unfortunately, I think Putin who now has the last laugh. And maybe uh, Catherine can actually talk, talk a little bit more about that search during that time. Uh, eventually, they, I'd say, failed. Uh, they did not uh, offer for an alternative, a substitute. Uh, Yelp's notion of the Russians was very unclear what he meant by it. Uh, again, it was not really well understood. And uh, Putin, when he came to power, he sensed that void. Partly because I think he represents uh, the, precisely um, he, he is part of those same groups who felt this loss of this sense of community very strongly. And he was he was able to cater uh, to that demand, being a Russian, uh, belong under Putin has not received a meaning, a very unfortunate meaning from my perspective. It's a horrible meaning, as you said, almost a fascist one. We can like discuss the terms, but certainly. Not uh, I have certainly it's not not a very uh, benevolent aspect of it. However, it delivers. It is understood in the it gets a response in the Russian society. We see in all of the polls that this uh, the events like Crimea annexation, for example, trigger a very strong response among the Russians. They do feel a uh, increased sense of belonging, increased pride in their own country. I think the best manifestation of it is this song, uh, I am Russian, ethnic Mm. Russian by Shaman, a very popular Russian singer these days. If I highly recommend our audiences that you read the words of the song, he literally says, I'm I'm Russian in spite of everything. Like everybody literally almost can hate me, but I am Russian and I'm proud of it.
0: And this is again this example of how this is transmitted through popular culture in memory you mentioned the 90s and having spent almost all the 90s in um in russia and other parts of the former soviet union and when I, when I was a much younger man with a lot more hair and when you and i actually met for the first time you were even younger um it did have this kind of weimar vibe to it um when you kind of look back it wasn't really apparent at the time but when you re- when i reflect on my time in russia in the 90s it did have kind of this Weimar vibe, and I don't want to be essentialist and saying what eventually happened was inevitable because I think by no means it, uh, it, it, well, it it was. Kathleen, could you kind of can you comment on this evolution? Because I uh, this, this 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 didn't just go from one thing to another. It wasn't binary. It kind of evolved over the past twenty years.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And to go back to kind of the starting place that Maria mentioned here in 1991, you know, there was this moment which one might have thought would have been somehow preserved, commemorated in history as a turning point moment. And that's when uh, there was popular pushback to the attempted coup against Gorbachev to to restrain, um, you know, to restrain that effort to push him out of power. Uh, We all in the West famously know that image of Yeltsin standing on the personnel carrier in front of the White House, you know, rallying people around him. Uh, And notably, even though he did not have a good relationship with Gorbachev, saying, like, what about the Constitution? We need to play by the rules. What they're doing is illegal and therefore I'm against it. Um, And. I've argued in my writings about uh, popular memory and commemoration that this is kind of a missed chance, that Yeltsin didn't really take this and make it, you know, part of a new cult or part of a new moment where one could have said, you know, let's let's praise civil society. Um, Let's embrace this uh, rule and rule of law desire that we can see among the population I think Yeltsin thought that that kind of propagandizing and state-driven narratives, that that's what totalitarian states did. And he wasn't a totalitarian. And therefore, he didn't need mass holidays and lots of participation, right? He he was going to have a more open, uh, open door to ideas about what it means to be Russia and ideas for the future and so forth. But those very October 1993 events that we talked about, They really kind of block out all those images because that action takes place literally on the exact same spot. And so now there's an image for Russians of the White House blackened and burning disarray, you know, troops being called in Yeltsin being a much more, you know, uh, coercive figure. Uh, And so after that, you know, Yeltsin pushes through a new constitution, but I think he does suddenly appreciate that he needs a little bit more of an idea for Russia and what will it be. And throughout the 90s, there's sort of various stabs at that by liberal thinkers, but they're not based on an uncritical national pride. And they're not based on the idea of, you know, reconstructing this larger Russian empire. Um, Yeltsin was famously in favor of of federalism, right? Take all the federalism you could swallow. can can imagine mm-hmm. Putin saying that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a very different moment. And yet he and his surroundings, and perhaps it's partly because in many ways, if Yeltsin was a Democrat, he was a very flawed Democrat. if he's not able to become a spokesperson or to articulate uh, an alternate idea for
0: Russia, yeah no and um i mean you mentioned 93 again and like you could feel the vibe change after that it just felt a little bit less free uh after that you could feel it um in terms of 91 that iconic image of yeltsin standing on the tank when i look at it now i'm struck by the person standing next to yeltsin on the tank it's alexander Karzakov, a kgb general who became Yeltsin's bodyguard. And I think now, I mean it, at the time the significance of that of course did not resonate, but looking at that now in retrospect, there were two people standing at the front of that tank. Yeltsin well, and Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> and that, I mean, <laughs> that... <laughs>
2: Yeah, I would go back though and say again, if we look more broadly at that picture, you know, there there there's another person standing on top of that tank too and it's Nikolai Varonsov, a famously yep. liberal Russian yep. scientist, the first Minister of, uh, you know, environmentalism. And he's the one who took the notes about what everyone is saying bad, you know, about Gorbachev when they have this Council of Ministers meeting. So I do think that, you know, while Putin makes an essentialist argument, I think that his version of history, it smooths out all those wrinkles that there are always people in Russia who think differently from this idea that what we need is, is a... An overwhelming, strong statist
0: regime. Yeah, no, it's just this the the, the history of this period is going to be gone over and over and, and and over again. I'm I'm in the midst of a a book on the lessons we can learn all from that from that period. Um, we're bumping up against. We got. We, I'm looking at the clock, being very careful about the time. There's there are two more things I want to touch on before we wrap it up, Maria. You, you and your co-authors in the report uh, attribute the uh, color revolutions that took place in Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan um, in the early 2000s, uh, between 2003 and 2006. Um, and you refer to this as kind of a Thermidorian moment. This is the moment when Putinist ideology kind of became Thermadorian, um, became conservative, became anti-revolutionary. Can you expound on that a bit? Because I found that aspect of the report pretty interesting.
1: Uh, I wanted to flag, by the way, thank you, Brian, that the Thermidorian aspect was pointed out to me by Gleb Pavlovsky, the political technologist of Kremlin at the time, and as, as they, he would, it's his he would know. <laughs> but yes, yeah, he would know, I interviewed him at the time when he was still alive, uh, and uh, he also flagged that as has been a very important development. I think we all see that uh, that uh, color revolutions or other developments across the region that uh, are uh, try- helping uh, or threatening the Kremlin's grip over uh, these territories tend to be quite triggering uh, for the Kremlin historically and uh, that I think is also very important to understand uh, what are the reasons why the Kremlin Putin starts the wars. Uh, from my perspective, domestic considerations and uh, like questions about concerns about personal Putin's um, you know old to power secondary here, uh, the ability to control over uh, to control to maintain preserve control over Ukraine, Uh, Georgia, uh, Belarus and other uh, countries of the region uh, seem to be, I think, of more high importance because this is where the real risks for Putin are. When it comes to his domestic challenges, I do not think, unfortunately, they're as high. And uh, uh, so consistently you see that color revolutions or similar developments across the region are triggering uh, for the Kremlin. And I think potentially the decision to invade Ukraine in 2022 may have been finalized after 2020 protests in Belarus.
0: There are many who are making that argument right now. Yeah.
1: It may have felt, again, I'm not pretending I'm reading Putin's mind, but it could have been the really the last straw uh, for the Kremlin. Uh, as we know, uh, people with KGB background tend to be, con- tend to be convinced these are developments uh, that do not happen uh, independently from uh, the, you know, the dark influence of the CIA, uh, the United States and whatnot. So it is indeed a geopolitical struggle, a power, a struggle for Russian Greek power uh, status, its ability to control the neighboring uh, territories. Uh, it is also a struggle for identity because uh, the Kremlin is trying to um, you know, uh, may, make sure that these states, these countries preserve the vision of the world the Crownland's vision of the world, right? While this country is uh, countries actually trying to get away. Of that vision of the world, and they have to tend to increasingly embrace different type of identity, alternative to what Russia is offering. by the way, again, this whole speech has been saying that it's obvious that we have a lot to offer. It's not. It's not really obvious that Russia has a lot to of offer because its soft power tools obviously are not working anymore, and it has to resolve to this horrible, hard uh, power method. And uh, uh, this is going back to Ke- uh, Kathleen's point. Uh, one thing I wanted to flag is unlike um Russia countries like Ukraine Georgia and especially the baltics they've been able to develop an alternative vision of their own identity where the other is Russia the Soviet Union all these repressive states right that they're trying to get away from which is highly seen as imperialistic colonizing state that they're trying to get away from towards the west the liberal individuals etc cetera, etc cetera. in Russia's case however and it's been seen, uh, it's been quite visible, uh, since the 1990s, this alternative identity, more pro-Western, other in the Soviet past, it failed to emerge. It was very hard for Russia from the start mm-hmm. to other itself, because unfortunately, uh, the communism and horrible, you know, communist system, uh, it originated in Russia. Right. And Russians effectively failed uh, to develop this alternative identity that would have seen that would have presented the past as the other and the future being with the West, with more pro-European liberal identity. And so far as we conclude in the report, quite pessimistically, it's hard to imagine where uh, this effort, how could this effort could succeed now that, uh, you know, more pro-liberal groups uh, live in the country, is high uh, numbers, there is fewer possibilities to access alternative information because everything is under state control. The Kremlin is tries now to ban the EPNs. In the younger generations, they tend to be more susceptible to this pro-Western liberal values. We discussed this with you, Brian, in our previous episodes. Unfortunately, there are too few. First of all, uh, for example, uh, the groups 15 to 29 years old represent less than 17% of the Russian population based on the latest census. Even fewer of them now that they're being disproportionately killed in ukraine or have fled the country in large numbers in 2022 and also this is the group of where the kremlin has particularly target is its brainwashing uh, propagandist effort all of these courses you know about like the new scientific communism uh this uh discussions of the important things that uh, that i nearly introduced courses in the high school etc all of them are targeted at the Russian. Uh, younger uh, populations, so I suspect it will be really hard for them to resist uh, this powerful grip of the
0: state. Yeah, no, the study of this of the, of the rising generations is actually one of the most important aspects of this. What you were talking about earlier, Maria, I would say, I mean, the, what, what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union is Russia didn't have a, have a catharsis. I mean, the, the period is marked by what didn't happen. There wasn't a catharsis there wasn't a sense of we are guilty we must examine ourselves we can't live like this anymore um and i still see very little evidence one tiny bit of evidence was my guest on the podcast two weeks ago Mikhail zegar um to his book war and punishment um which i can't recommend enough because this is at least an attempt to start a discussion it could lead to such a catharsis but uh, unfortunately right now Misha is kind of a, a minority of one I, I'd like to see that grow a bit um but it but but uh, we can only hope going forward Kathleen any thoughts on this on the on the color revolutions and the evolution and how that how that kind of led to this thermidorian moment
2: well I think Maria has really done an excellent uh job at answering that question about why uh, that was sort of a thermidorian moment and uh, I would just add to say that Whereas Putin's initial reactions there seemed quite defensive, right? That they were mobilized, it was mobilized by fear. Um, the interesting twist to me now is how this has become an aggressive moment. So it's not uh, just fear of revolutions elsewhere, right? It's it's identifying sort of fantasy enemies, Nazis in Ukraine, um, and it's gone beyond a protective reaction and turned into aggression. So I think that's something that's worth studying. And then just to pick up on Maria's last points about the younger generation, I agree that this is something we need to know more about. And here's where I wonder to what extent these ideological practices are going to be effective. And that's because they are simply so paternalistic, so over the top, so monolithic that one isn't allowed to discuss, question, et cetera, that uh you know, I wonder if their perception will be largely superficial.
0: Mm, no, that's a that that's that that's a good point. I wonder about the sustainability of it too, given the place young generations are in around the world um in this in this kind of globalized digital connected environment. I, I wonder about the sustainability of it. The very last thing I wanted to hit on, and I'm again watching the time closely. Um this was all made Possible or a component of this, and again, you you allude to it in the report, Maria. I think it's also very important: the failure of Surkovism, if you will, the failure of Vladislav Surkov's vision of creating this fake democracy that was really an autocracy. Right? That's basically, in essence, what Surkovism was. It was the it was a spin dictatorship. To 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 to, to, to cite Gudiev and Treisman, um which I think that, that, that I, I I do think. Yeah, no, I, th- I love that formulation. It was a spin dictatorship, and now it's turned into a fear dictatorship, effectively. Um, so it just, I mean, why did Serkovism fail? Um, how, how do you see this component in the development of this ideology?
1: Yeah, great question. I think it failed because it was unsustainable in the first place. It was the compromise, a compromise uh, an effort to achieve a compromise between the goals of this growing uh, uh, stages grip with the society, while at the same time preserving the modernizing elements of it. I think it culminated under Medvedev, but also right. under Medvedev, it actually has demonstrated its failure to uh, sustain itself uh, because the modernizing l orbit of it would uh, try to destroy the carefully craft- crafted power vertical, uh, behind, right, right. Uh, as this podcast is named, um, that Putin uh, has delivered. And so eventually it became apparent that you have to choose one or another. It's impossible uh, to sustain both. Right. Kokov also misunderstood that, which is obvious uh, in his miscalculation. case, seemed to have uh, favored Medvedev. And that's one of the reasons why he lost, at least at yeah. the moment, he lost uh, popularity with the Kremlin uh, eventually. And uh, certainly, unfortunately, it was doomed from the start. A uh, same issue as we see with the so-called system of liberals, right? Who have been able to sustain this very you know, fragile balance of uh, Russia that was still attempting to modernize a little bit while uh, the Putin's grip or the precipice of the power has been strengthening. But eventually it failed. And I think with all the horror uh, that it, we are currently seeing, of course, the uh, the price that, unfortunately, particularly particular, Ukraine has to pay, there is a degree of clarity uh, to this moment. Yeah. I think we see that a lot of um, processes that were unraveling and make us uh, left us puzzled maybe for this last thirty years. Now I think they're becoming more clear. Uh, we see that these acquired people unfortunately uh, still uh, survived, and as you p- completely correctly pointed out, uh, Brian, uh, Russia is yet to see to get its own catharsis moment to finally face itself in the mirror and try to reflect on what it is. I'm um, who- that maybe the one Ukraine and Ukrainians, because there's little hope Russians will be able to do this. Maybe Ukrainians with their uh, radical defeat of Russian Ukraine will be able yeah. to provide this money.
0: Now, we are all placing our hopes in <laughs> Ukraine on this for a number of, of reasons. I mean, the way I see Serkovism, it was political theater. And during the Medvedev presidency, some people got some crazy ideas in their heads that maybe this political theater could become reality. And Putin was supposed to make a choice there and said, "Okay, let's take the mask off. And now the mask is completely off, um, exposing the ugliness at the core of this system. We are now really at the end. Kathleen, last word to you before we wrap it up.
2: Yeah, I will just say that I think uh, it is more black and white now. There is less masking of intentions, uh, more twisting of history. But I think there's a limit to how far you can twist history. And I wonder if this cult of World War II will someday come back to reawaken Russians when they contrast their war, their their role in the World War II with their role in the current war. That there's a profound contradiction there um, that will be difficult to hide if you had a critical discussion.
0: Yeah, there's certainly a contradiction between nineteen forty one and nineteen forty five, but I see amazing consistency between nineteen thirty-nine and forty one. Um, Something I can get arrested for, for saying in Russia. Actually, but on that note, we shall wrap it up. Uh, That's all, unfortunately, all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Critical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name's Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from historic downtown Washington, D.C. has been my old friend Maria Negovaya, a senior fellow in the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic Studies studies. Maria is also a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Maria is also co-author of the newly published and must-read report from CSIS that we discussed today, The Ideology of Putinism. Is it sustainable? We'll put a link in the show notes. Everybody should read it. Also joining us from our nation's capital has been Kathleen Smith a professor at Georgetown School of Foreign Service and associate director of its Center for Eurasian, Russian, and Eastern European Studies. Thank you both for making us a lot smarter and for an enlightening discussion.
1: Thank you so much, Brian.
0: Thank you. I also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Leigas is in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a whole lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you: you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review because that helps our visibility you can also access the podcast read the power vertical blog and access all power vertical products at power vertical.org you can follow us on the platform formerly known as the twitter at our vertical you can also follow us on blue sky and on threads at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.